Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Thank you for tuning in at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word, to The Word to Stand On For Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And every weekday at 4, we get together so that we can take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, anything and everything that's on your heart and mind. We will do the very best that we can. We've got some good questions that have been sent in. But remember, we always appreciate your live calls. It makes the program a lot more interesting. Here are your phone numbers. 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use the free Calvary Chapel mobile app and send your questions directly to our producer that way. If you are driving in your car today, uh, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. All you have to do is hit one button with your hands-free feature, call now, and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time, 340-9585. Since it's Tuesday... We'll get right to the questions. We've got nothing going on. Here's the first one from our email inbox from Rex. And Rex says, can you explain Christianity to me? Christianity, he has in quotes. Is it a religion? And why do different groups claim to be Christians? They all can't be right. Rex, you're right. Uh, Just saying that you're a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is... A relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, let me start in the middle of your question. Christianity is not a religion. I know it's identified by the media as a religion. We who are Christians, especially if we're devout, we're we're described as being um, um, very religious. uh, But nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, Jesus is not um, anything more than the one who came to die for my sins. He asked me to believe, and when I did, he became, think about this, Rex, God became my friend. And he condescended to live in me, in the person of the Holy Spirit, so that we could have a continuing relationship, so that the access, my access to God, would always be available. That's very, very important. So I'm going to try my best to explain Christianity to you, Rex. And uh, when you ask a question like this, it's uh, it seems clear to me that you're not a believer, and I'm hoping that God's been knocking on the door in your heart and you're about to become one. Christianity is a group of men and women who follow Jesus. Now, if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to be like Jesus. The only way we can be like Jesus is to know him and spend more and more time with him. I already told you it's not a religion. It is a relationship. You see, because of your sins, Rex, and your sins, I'm certain, weren't nearly as bad as mine. 
But because of our sins, we were forever separated from God. The relationship God wanted from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when he created Adam and then Eve, he wanted to walk in the cool of the garden with them. Well, in the same way, Jesus wants to walk with us. That requires a relationship. And the thing that stands in the way of the relationship is your sin and mine. The standard of heaven is perfection. Now, a lot of times, Rex, people think that's too high a standard. God is being too picky. But think about it. Would you want a God who wasn't perfect? And since the standard of perfection is, or the standard of heaven is perfection, the only way that we can get to heaven is to be perfect. And the only way we can be perfect is to believe in Jesus Christ because he gives us his perfection in exchange for taking on our sins, our filth. So that's what it means to be a Christian. To be born again means that we surrender our hopes and dreams in exchange for His. Now, to be able to do that, you have to believe by faith that God is who He said He was. Now, Rex, a lot of times when people don't know the Lord, it's hard to understand some of these things. But I want you to consider this. The minute you say yes to Jesus, he comes to live in your heart. This isn't trying him out. This isn't, well, I'll come to you, Jesus, if you fix my life. This is coming to Jesus because apart from Jesus, you're condemned to an eternity in hell. Just like I was, just like every Christian was. And yet he died for our sins when we ask him for forgiveness. And he gives us that perfection. We begin this lifelong, actually eternity-long love affair. For me, Rex, it's lasted for 27 years. And it's been, and I'm quite a bit older than 27, so it's been the best part of my life by far. I'm so grateful because I'm forgiven. I'm grateful that Jesus is with me every day. I don't get lonely. I... I don't get sad. No, I get sad when sad things happen. But his joy never leaves. And that's what real Christianity is. Real Christianity is being forgiven and following him. Jesus said, to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross. That's an instrument of death. In other words, die to yourself. Luke adds the word daily in there. It's something that we have to do every day and follow Jesus. So that's what a Christian is. It's the root word, Christian means little Christ. Now, we don't become Christ, big or little, but we become his followers, his men and women. And that's why it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Religion has always been, Rex, man's attempt to reach up to God, to justify himself before God. Those of us who are real Christians, we know that Jesus had to come down to us. We could in no way make it to him. The gap between him and me is so great. So he had to reach down for me, and he's reaching down for you, Rex. And all you have to do is say yes. Why do different groups claim to be Christians? They can't all be right. You're right. Mormons are not Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. Many Catholics are not Christians. I'd go so far as to say most Catholics are not Christians. Why? Because they've never been born again. Or, in the case of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, they have the wrong Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Son of God who became God the Son. He had to be a man, because it takes a man to die for the sins of mankind. And he had to be without sin, because that's the only way his sacrifice would be acceptable to God, his Father. And now, I hope yours. So, Rex, all you have to do is come to the real Jesus. A man who lived without sin. He died falsely accused and murdered. And he didn't stay dead. Sort of his way of putting an exclamation point on everything that he said and who he was and what he came to do. So if you understand that, the way to become a Christian, Rex, is simply to ask. 
no matter what you've done, no matter how messed up your life is, all you have to do is say, Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? I, I know I've done terrible things. And even now, Rex, there may be an enemy who's screaming at you, who can't forgive you after the th- terrible things you've done. But Jesus' answer has already been given to us. Yes, he's eager to forgive you. And then tell him you're sorry for sinning. Tell him you're sorry for the pain that you've caused, not just him, but the people in your life. And then say, Jesus, deliver me from this pain. Come into my heart and take over my life. And then, Rex, you become a real Christian. And it's a brand new start. Rex, I was almost 40 years old, just a couple of months shy of my 40th birthday when I got saved. And in the almost 40 years of life, I caused so much pain that I really believe that God could save everybody, but he couldn't save me. I couldn't imagine that God would want to save me. But after I got saved, I realized that there had been multitudes of people praying for me daily. Sometimes, as in the case of Paula, many, many times per day. And when I finally got rid of my pride, when I finally stopped thinking that I can fix this, I'll, I'll make things better, when I finally realized that my track record had already been established, everything that I touched, I caused pain to, then it was easy to call out for help because I knew I really needed it. One final thought, Rex, we who are Christians, we don't think we're better than other people. In fact, we know we're not. Anybody who thinks that they're better than other sinners probably hasn't really met Jesus. So don't worry so much about what anybody else says. Don't worry about why they're different groups that call themselves Christians. The only thing that matters is that you become one, Rex. And I hope that explains it. If you need any more follow-up, just write again, Rex. I'd appreciate it very, very much. And if you give your heart to Jesus Christ, I would really, really love to know that and be able to report that so all of the angels in heaven could rejoice, but so could this radio listening audience as well. Rex, I appreciate the question very, very much. Here is a question from Gerald. He wants to know, Pastor Ron, has God already determined every event in our lives? Gerald, God knows every event in your life because he lives outside of time and space and he knows the end from the beginning. Clearly, he knows everything that's going to happen. But God doesn't cause them, and that's the way you mean determined. God doesn't make you do those things. We do the things that we do because we make the choice to do them. And God just knows what choice you're going to make. Now, here's the great thing about a question like this, Gerald, is you have the opportunity right now to determine what God knows about every event in your life from this day forward. If he's given you free will to choose, you can follow Jesus or you can do what you're going to do. And he knows the choice you're going to make. But think about it this way. If you've got some things in your life that you know God doesn't want there, all you have to do right now is repent of those things and then say, Jesus, I don't want to do those things anymore. And you know what? What God knows about you and the future events in your life changes radically. So I get the sense that your question is, are we bound and can do nothing about what's going to happen in our lives because God has predetermined all those things. The answer is we're not bound by anything. You know, Paul says um, that once we were slaves to sin and now we're slaves to righteousness and the choices we make are already known by God and he knows what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, but he doesn't cause those things to happen. So I hope that makes a, a clear enough distinction to you, Gerald. Uh, he knows everything, but he doesn't cause any of it. Thank you very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. Are Christians obligated to tithe to their church? Uh, anonymous, I hate the word obligated. We get to give, but the word tithe means a tenth. And, you know, typically... Um, 
it's taught wrongly that Christians should give 10% of all of their increase, all of their income to the Lord. You know what? Even Mormons tithe, and they don't have the real Jesus. Under the law, a law that condemned people, Jews tithed. How much more should we give of our own free will because of grace? If the law says that we give a tenth, and remember the law was written to Israel, to Jews, how much more should we who are under a completely new covenant give simply because of the gratitude of our hearts? So here's the distinction, Anonymous. We're not obligated to do anything, but we're free to do everything. And I think the difference between um, what the Bible teaches versus in, in the New Testament uh, and what the Old Testament teaches in this horrible teaching on tithing that is so prevalent in the church is that we are men and women who are privileged to give with a cheerful, grateful heart but we're obligated to do nothing. Let me also say this, Anonymous. If you're giving out of obligation, there's no reward in heaven for it. Now, God will still use your money, and he'll bless the church that you go to. But there's no reward for you, so why do it? Our announcer every Sunday here says that if you don't give with a cheerful heart, just don't even bother to give. It's not that we don't need the money. Believe me, we need the money. But giving is something that we do because Jesus gave everything for us. And if you want to be like Jesus, you've got to be generous. If you want to be like Jesus, you've got to give everything. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, brothers, in view of God's mercy, literally seeing everything that God's done, what should we do? He says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, it is your reasonable service, or another translation says your spiritual act of worship, we might say sincere. And so everything that we have, anonymous, belongs to the Lord. Everything comes from Him, thus everything goes to Him, belongs to Him. And I think with the, 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 the insertion of the word tithe here, too many of us as New Testament Christians, we've got the impression that uh, all of our money... 90% of it is ours and 10% of it is God's. And the, uh, the, the, my response to that is that's simply not true. Everything that we have, everything we ever will have, belongs to Him. Now, don't worry, He's going to let you keep most of it. But if it belongs to Him and we pledge our love to Him, and if we call Him Lord, isn't it true, Anonymous, that we should ask Him what He wants us to do with His stuff? We are stewards of everything that he gives to us. When you're married, you're a steward of your husband or of your wife. When you're a parent, you're a steward of your children. They, they don't belong to you. You're simply acting in God's behalf. The gifts, the talents that God has given you, we're stewards of those gifts. The same thing is true with our money. It all belongs to him. I hope, Anonymous, you have the faith to trust him with his stuff. Hope that answers your question. I just don't like the word obligated when it comes to Jesus. He wasn't obligated to save us, but he did. That was his offering. What then should our offering be? Here is our third question, another, or fourth question, actually, another anonymous question. If evolution is true, could it be that God used evolution to create the world and people? Two things, anonymous. Evolution cannot possibly be true. Period. End of discussion. It simply cannot be true if the Bible is true. Let me take that in another direction. If the Bible is not true, Anonymous, then we're all in trouble. You know what? If the Bible is not true, it's probably true that evolution is true. 
But here's what we know. We know the Bible is true. We know the Bible is the Word of God. So here's what we've got. And 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 um, the way you presented the question is like you've been convinced in school or something of the, the process of evolution. Um, but we've got to decide. Is this, well, I call it science fiction, but I don't want to be demeaning here. So if science says evolution is a settled fact, and by the way, it's not a settled fact, uh, evolution or Big Bang Theory, um, uh, the, the process of becoming who we are now, uh, there's a lot of debate, a lot of argument among scientists over that. But every one of those scientists begins with the proposition that there is no God. So evolution cannot be true if our Bibles are true. And if our Bible is true, then we've got to choose to believe what God says. And God says in the beginning, God. And we know Anonymous on the sixth day he created Adam. And he looked at Adam and said, this is the best thing I've ever done. And then he created within Adam a desire for a mate, put him to sleep, and out of his side came Eve, woman out of man, and they were the first two humans ever. So that's really, really important. They were the first two humans ever. If that's not true, then all of our Bible is false. Jesus is not God because Jesus witnessed to the truth of Adam and Eve. And if he lied to us once, he can lie to us again. And if he lied to us even that one time, then he's no better than all the other religious charlatans that have come throughout the course of history. Now, the second part of your question, could it be that God used evolution to create the world and people? If that were true, Anonymous, our God would be a very cruel, inefficient God. So it's simply not possible if you believe your Bible. I'm not talking about, well, you know, I believe the Bible. Some people don't believe the Bible. I'm talking about each individual. We have to choose who we believe, and we've got to settle that issue in our hearts and minds once and for all. Adam is called the first Adam, Jesus the second Adam. If Adam wasn't real, then the second Adam, Jesus, isn't real. So those are the choices we've got to make every single day. We've got to believe, in spite of what the world bombards us with, what they call evidence. Their scientific theories, that's all they are, their scientific theories begin with the proposition there is no God. What we believe as Christians, that which has been validated by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, says in the beginning God, he was the only one there in the beginning and really that's what science is all about. Observation and then working the theories through. If you start with the premise that there is no God, you cease to become a scientist. So I hope that answers your question. We've got just a couple of minutes left, I think, in this half of the program. We'd love your live calls uh, as we come back from the break. 340-9585. Let me get a really um, quick question. Reggie wants to know, can we be sure we won't sin when we get to heaven. Reggie, we can be sure, and here's why. Um, the Bible says that when we see him, though we don't know yet what we will be, this is the Apostle John, what we know is this, we will be like he is. Our bodies will be like his. Well, what was his body? It was a glorified, resurrected body. We know that in him was light. There was no darkness at all. And since there's no darkness, he couldn't possibly have sinned. And so when our bodies are transformed, Reggie, then we won't sin either. Temptation will no longer have a grip on us when we go to be with Jesus 
uh, after the rapture of the church and when we uh, are, are ruling and reigning with Jesus in the millennium uh, here on earth for, for, for that glorious 1,000 years. We're going to be just like Jesus. Temptation will come to us and we'll just look at that like it's filth. Who wants to do something like that? So I understand the emotion of the question in these flesh and blood, tired, wearing out bodies. We succumb so often to sin and sometimes so easily to sin and temptation that we think, well, I blow it here all all the time. I'm probably going to blow it there. But you see, that wouldn't be heaven. We're going to be like he is. Now, the best way to be like he is here on earth is to walk with him. And John says that if we claim to belong to him, we have to walk in the light as he is in the light. So, Reggie, if temptation is a problem for you here, spend more time with Jesus. Learn more about who he is and what he's done for you and how much he loves you. And if you'll do that, things will change. But we don't have to worry about when we're in heaven for sure. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions, or 877-630-KSLR. You're listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program it's the tuesday show we have a question from our email inbox that just came in from jacob jacob says i know jesus is god This question is founded on confusion with the Trinity. Did God raise Jesus from the dead, or did Jesus raise himself from the dead? If God did, then what makes this resurrection any different from when God raised others from the dead? If he raised himself, why does the Bible say and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? And if the answer is, well, Jesus and God are one and the same, why are they explained as separate persons when explaining the Trinity? Jacob... I hope and pray I don't confuse you even more. I I think you're on the verge of sort of understanding this. And please don't be frustrated with confusion about the Trinity. People have been confused about the triune God from the beginning of time. So so I'm going to go slowly and do my best to make this clear. The answer to your question is yes. Now, here's what I mean. God the Father. Now, when you say God, your your reference, I'm sure, is to the Father, but I want to make it clear for the listening audience. The Father, the Bible tells us, multiple times raised Jesus from the dead. But we're also told in Scripture multiple times that Jesus raised himself from the dead. And I think it's two occasions we're told that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. In the same way, it was... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit that were instrumental in the act of creating all things from the very beginning. Now, the truth is they are one. They're one in, in, in essence. They're one in character. They're one in attributes. There's perfect unity between Father, Son, and Spirit. So, when you ask did the Father raise Jesus from the dead? Um, they were in perfect harmony. Jesus raised himself from the dead because he gave up his spirit. And then by the power of God, Jesus was God, he raised himself from the dead. So it was a cooperative effort. The spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Now, you said if the answer is, well, they're one and the same, and I, I included the Holy Spirit, you did not. Why are they explained as separate persons when explaining the Trinity? Is because they are. We serve one God, ever present in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. All God, but only one God. 
people say, well, one plus one plus one is three. I always use this example, but one times one times one is what? It's one. So that's the way we need to look at this. And even if it doesn't make sense to us in, in our limited ability to think, there's a couple of things that we have to think. One, do we want to be able to figure out everything about God? If I could figure out everything about God, that would almost make me like God, wouldn't it? But I can't understand it in a limited way, but I can apprehend it in its fullness. So here's why they're explained as separate persons. The Father sent the Son so that the Son could reveal the person of the Father. God the Father lives in unapproachable light. No one can see God and live. If we had to see the Father in all of His glory, uh, if it was up to us to be able to do that, we couldn't. So that's why God had to become a man. Jesus, talking to Philip, Philip said, well, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, after all this time, don't you know yet that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? They're one and the same. But they're different persons. While the Father remained in heaven, Jesus came to earth. Why? To reveal the Father. Now, when Jesus was leaving Jacob, he told his disciples, it's good for you that I go away, because if I go away, I will send another me. Now, the words he uses, another counselor or comforter, but the word another is a Greek word, alos, and it means it's the exact same substance, just different physicality. So the Spirit will come live in us, and Jesus said his job is to reveal me, to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And of course, it's the Holy Spirit that leads us to that place where Jesus becomes real to us. So each person of the triune God, while they're one God, each has a different job. And that job is revealing the other. The Spirit reveals the Son. The Son revealed the Father. The Spirit's work is not yet done. And when it is, we'll be up in heaven. And then the, the triune God in all of its glory will be revealed to all of us. Some things, Jacob, we accept by faith. Again, not blind faith. We accept by faith because the Bible makes the declaration that is clear. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. But they all have different roles at different times. And when we get to heaven, we will understand perfectly. I hope that makes sense to you. 340-90... I'm losing my my brain again. 340-9585. Let's go to Tanya from San Leandro. Tanya, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Rana. You know, I I don't live there, so I take advantage. When you say call, you know, I'm going to call. You you can call anytime (laughs) you you want to. Thank you, sir. Um, My love to you and Mama Paula. I'm always praying for you guys and the folks on the listening uh, radio and the church in general. It's just so many things are happening nowadays. It's just uh, very frightening, especially living in California. Uh, So I'd ask for prayer for this state as well. But um, I have a question for you, sir, and it has to do with Micah. I went online to try to find the commentary uh, for Micah, and I I couldn't find anything from from you guys. So I'm a little confused. Um, In Micah uh, 4 and 5, I'm trying to understand what Micah is is talking about. Is he talking about um, the rapture in 4 and 5? So I'm a little confused there. And also... What is Armageddon? Is that, when is that, or is that, I'm, I'm confused with that whole timeline. Last time I asked questions about the judgments and when that happened, but when it comes to, you know, the, uh, the thousand year reign, and we get raptured, the thousand year reign, and then Satan is released, uh, and then what's Armageddon and where does all that fall, and is Micah even talking about that, or am I just way off base? 
Nope, you're, you're, you're only a little off base. Uh, Micah, uh, one of the minor prophets, um, he's not at all talking about the rapture of the church. Um, He's just talking about uh, prophesying all the way down to the end of time. And and it's interesting. When you said Micah 4 and 5, did you mean chapter 4, verse 5, or chapters 4 and 5? Oh, I think we lost Um, uh, No, no, Pastor Ron, I meant chapters... Four and five, but it starts particularly in four, right? Because one through yes. three, I believe, is when he starts talking about the judgment, and then four, five, six, and seven is a different tone. But I was just confused. I'm confused in there. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of these prophecies, uh, Tanya, and and the confusion uh, is 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 pretty widespread. Micah is one of the minor prophets, as I indicated, and so he doesn't get a lot of study. The reason you didn't find it on our website is simply because I haven't taught through Micah. I've taught through the whole New Testament um, more than once, but uh, the Old Testament, we only do one one night a week, so I haven't gotten to Micah yet. God's repeated some things, but I haven't gotten to Micah yet and some of the other minor prophets. Um, but in in uh, in chapters four and five, he's talking about the the, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. Uh, he says, "We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever." In that day, I'll gather the lame, I'll assemble the exiles, and those I brought to grief. Uh, I will make the lame a remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Zion from that day and forever. So that's a a picture of the the very end when all of the promises to uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are are brought to complete fulfillment. Now, in the process, of course, uh, Israel is is a, a nation that Mike is prophesying to, who is a defeated nation, and and they're 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 surrounded by enemies, and so he talks to them about the salvation that is to come. Now. Uh, you're crying aloud, verse 9 says in chapter 4, Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? The the, the uh, pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor. What he's calling them to do is to, to, to have them to cry out in faith, to believe. And then he goes uh, almost piecemeal. Um, in chapter 5, he gets to, to the, the birth of our Lord. Uh, this is how it's going to happen. Uh, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And then he sums up by saying, therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So this is sort of a snapshot look at at the rest of history. But But God is indicating that he's completely intends to fulfill every promise that was made to Israel. Every promise. So it doesn't look good now, but hold on, a rescuer is coming. Now, the whole purpose of these prophecies was to get the people of Israel to repent of their sins so God could be with them in the here and now. But, of course, we know that they didn't, and they would end up in captivity, and we've talked about that a lot on the program. So let me get to the, the second part of your question, because here's what's going to happen. Armageddon is the last battle. It's actually going to occur in the Valley of Megiddo. It's a, a, a famous area for war in the Middle East. It's a perfect war theater, if you will. Um, in the Valley of Megiddo, it's when the Antichrist and his forces are going to sort of square off against the forces that come from the east, the 200 million man army coming from the east, right at the end of the Great Tribulation. Uh, They're going to gather to fight one another, and that's when Jesus is going to return. We're going to be there with him, Tanya. Jesus is going to return. Uh, He's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split in two. He's going to destroy both armies with, with simply a word from his mouth. And that's when he will begin to rule and reign on earth. So that's what Armageddon is. It's a, it's a reference to the final battle. And if you find a map and find the Valley of Megiddo, that's where Armageddon is going to happen. I always think it's interesting, Tanya, that, that we've got two enemies who are going to gather together to destroy each other in the very last days. 
And the only thing that's going to unite them is when Jesus comes with, with his army, that's you and me. Now, he's going to do all the fighting. He doesn't need us. But um, they're suddenly going to be united with one another. They're going to turn their missiles and nuclear weapons and whatever else they have at that time. Uh, they're going to turn those weapons on Jesus, and, and he's simply going to laugh and, and destroy them with a word. And that's when he's going to establish his kingdom. So we've got the rapture of the church. Then we've got the seven years of the Great Tribulation. At the halfway point of the Great Tribulation, three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to, to uh, uh, cause the abomination that causes desolation. He's going to demand to be worshipped in the temple of God. There will be a new temple built in the, the Great Tribulation. Jews will rebel. They will flee to uh, the rock city of, of Petra in Jordan, uh, where God will protect them. A remnant of Jews will believe when Jesus returns. A third of them, two-thirds of them, will be destroyed. And then, as the world gathers to make war against one another, opposing forces, the Antichrist is going to have people that oppose him. That's when Jesus intervenes, and that's when he comes and destroys his enemies and establishes his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years when we will rule and reign with him. So I hope that helps. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to I'll pray, Lord, let me do Micah pretty soon, because it really is a, a pretty good um, book to teach. Thank you, Tanya. Appreciate it very, very much. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Here is a question from Angela. She wants to know, do we know what happened to Pontius Pilate? We really do, Angela, with with pretty good certainty. Uh, there is a, a lot written about him. Um, history records that a short time after um, his um, um, permitting Jesus to be crucified, um, Pilate was summoned by the Roman Emperor Tiberius to answer charges that were brought against him. He had to go to Rome to do it. Now, because Jerusalem was always a problem, and he was the prefect in Jerusalem, uh, he, he was always in hot water. So naturally, Pontius Pilate, after uh, Jesus dying, after Jesus being raised from the dead, um, he's in more trouble at the end than he was at the beginning, even after his wife coming out and saying, have nothing to do with this man, for I've suffered many things in a dream this night. Because of him, he's a righteous man. And even though Pilate himself declared Jesus innocent multiple times, imagine how his conscience was bothering him. And now that the Jesus problem wasn't solved by his crucifixion, things were worse. The revolt and the rebellion against Rome w was even worse. Uh, than it was before. So he was summoned to uh, Tiberius in Rome. On his way to Rome, uh, news reached him that Tiberius had suddenly and unexplainedly died and the charges against him had been dropped. It must have looked to him like things were going to be fine. Boy, I'm out of the hot water. Uh, I've escaped the trial that he thought would end his life. Um, and so what we know about him is he went to uh, 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 southern France, a uh, sort of a retirement villa for him. He was known there by the name of Gaul, G-A-U-L. And after all the compromises, uh, after trying to curry the favor of all the people in Jerusalem on both sides of the issue and, and ending up putting Jesus to death, he ended up losing everything that was important to him. Uh, we're told that he grew so depressed that he took his own life and that's where he again met Jesus, the man he put to death. The problem is he would stay dead, and I don't mean unconscious dead, but he would stay dead while Jesus is alive. I think the moral of the story is that not doing what is right before God always, always leads to death. So, Angela, that's what you can know. Uh, reference material for that. There is a book uh, by F.F. F. Bruce called New Testament History um, that not only is wonderful for um, questions like this, but also has a, an amazing bibliography. And if you follow that bibliography, you can read all kinds of things um, that will answer a lot of the questions that we have. It did not turn out well for him. 
Um, not so with his wife. We're told that his wife became a believer and had some level of influence in the early church. And uh, when she met Jesus, it was to, to live. So, Angel, I hope that helps your question. Here's an anonymous question um, that I, I think is from a woman. Um, I view a wife having to submit to her husband as a form of slavery. How could God want us to be slaves? Anonymous, here's the thing that we've got to do. It doesn't matter how you view it. You see, I, I've said this so many times in this program. We have no right to our own opinions. I know when I say that, that offends people. But we have no right to our own opinions. Uh, if a husband and wife are married in Christ, submitting to her husband's leadership is a means to freedom, not slavery. So here's what you've got to do. You've got to change your opinion. You've got to change your perspective. Now, all you have to do is really, really read your Bible. I want you to think about something, and you can do this in the Song of Solomon. Read the parts that are entitled Lover. That's Jesus speaking to you, sharing his heart and his feelings. Just the parts titled Lover. Imagine Jesus looking right into your eyes, Anonymous, and through piercing your heart. And he's telling you how beautiful you are, how perfect you are. What his hopes and his dreams for you are. How could that man be misjudged as wanting you to be a slave? You see, when God tells us these are the things that we're supposed to do, he tells us those things because it's best for us And as Christians, our job is to agree with Christ. He wrote the Bible. So stop reading the Internet. Stop reading the news. And start reading your Bible, and you'll get the heart of God in the process. And you'll understand. Now, I don't want to be, or sound to, to be naive here. Uh, I'm a pastor, and I've been doing marriage counseling now for 23 years. And the single most difficult thing I have to tell a woman in marriage counseling is submit to the leadership of your husband. As long as he's not asking you to do anything ungodly, then you have to submit to his leadership because Jesus told you to. Trust Jesus. Don't trust your husband. And the reason it's the hardest thing is because I know they're husbands. I know we're not consistent. I know that we run hot and cold. I know that we make dumb choices and we make the same dumb choices over and over and over again. But this is why it requires faith. I also want to say this, Anonymous. This is not the way God made things. A woman submitting to her husband's leadership is a result of the fall. It's a curse. And a curse isn't a fun thing. It's not a good thing. It's not even a necessary thing. But but for us, because mankind fell, it is the thing it is. It's what we're stuck with. And so here's how you do it. Jesus, I'm going to submit to the leadership of my husband because I trust you. And I want a relationship with you that's vibrant, that thrives. And the only way we can do that is to be obedient. Acts 5.32, Anonymous says that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. And the only way you can submit to your husband and find joy in the process is by the power of God. So we've got to decide who we believe in these matters. One other word on slavery, Anonymous. Jesus himself said that we are all slaves to something. We're slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. The only way to be free, really free in this world, is to be slaves to righteousness. And then what we get, we want. So, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from our email inbox from Myra. Thank you for answering my son's question yesterday about what happens to the unbeliever when they die. 
My son is 15, and his name is Lazarus Jr. So the story from Luke 16 was very touching. Another question, if we tithe to the church, should we also give more to the homeless when we see them on the street corner? Most of the time I don't have cash, but my heart hurts for them. Myra, appreciate your heart. Um, I didn't know your son's name was Lazarus yesterday, so that's great. Uh, Lazarus isn't the rich man in the story, but he's the man that ends up in paradise. So that's a good thing to be. Um, uh, again, th- this whole question of tithing, I'd like everybody to wipe that word, every New Testament Christian to wipe that word out of their vocabulary. It means a tenth or ten percent, and and we're under no obligation to do that. The tithe, the law of the tithe was given to Israel, to Jews, not to us. Our responsibility is to give hilariously, to give generously, understanding that everything belongs to God, and then ask God, when we get some money, ask Him, okay, what do you want me to do with your money, Lord? This is very important. I understand how tithing is so ingrained in us. It's been taught so, so uh, for generations. Um, but, but I want to free you from the obligation to give so that we can all enjoy the privilege that we have of being stewards over what God has given us. It's a huge, huge difference. Um, I also appreciate your heart uh, in terms of, of heart, your heart hurting for the homeless and whether you know you should give to them. You know, these are individual matters, Myra, for prayer. Uh, these um, kinds of situations um, we really need to pray about. Just because your heart hurts doesn't mean that that uh, it's your responsibility to throw them some money when you drive by them on the street corners. There's a couple of things we have to understand. God says a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. And, and a lot of the homeless simply will not work. They'll spend all day asking for money, but they won't go get a job. Um, and sometimes, because we help them, um, they, they don't really have to turn to God for help. Second thing you understand is a lot of the homeless are mentally ill. And, and and are uh, either uh, uh, drunks or drug addicts. And when we give them money, they're going to use it for bad things. So what we do is we just do the best we can. And the best thing we can do is give them Jesus and pray for them. Once Wild Lord puts on your heart to give them something to eat, um, go buy them lunch. But other than that, just be careful. Pray for them and love them. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. I appreciate it. Um, Myra Tell Lazarus Jr. that Pastor Ron says hello. Thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On For Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On For Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On For Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Calvary.